Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Anna Spain Bradley about her latest book, Human Choice in International Law. It's published by Cambridge University Press in 2021, so it's just been released, which is really exciting. Uh, Professor Spain Bradley is Vice-Chancellor of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion and Professor of Law at University of California, Los Angeles. And now I'll let her tell you a little bit more about herself and her book. Um, So Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jane. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to meet you. Um, Now, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and perhaps how you came to write Human Choice in International Law? Yes, I am uh, somebody who has spent her life really excited and inspired by the common cause of peace, global peace. And I remember being 15 years old in high school and at that time learning about the United Nations for the first time and dreaming one day I'm going to work there. Didn't know what it meant, didn't know know, what the work involved. And fast forward, I've had a career that has uh, been in practicing law at the State Department in the United States government, international law. I've had a chance to do human rights work on the ground in places like Zimbabwe. I have had an opportunity to be an educator, a professor of law, uh, to be a writer, researcher, scholar who thinks deeply not only about how to practice law, but what the law should become. Uh, And in my current moment of my life and career, uh, I'm really taking the principles of international law generally and of human rights and peace more specifically and applying them to work surrounding advancing equity, diversity, and inclusion for communities. Uh, I think all these things connect up, which is that the world is in a critical moment in so many ways, and the best way forward will have to involve people. And so I wrote this book, which is what I consider to be a people-centric approach to understanding international law. Uh, And that's how I started to think about what became human choice in international law. And it was super fascinating. It was such a sort of refreshing account of international law beyond just doctrine um, or the sort of regular things that you you read in books. So I really appreciated that angle that you gave it. Um, so can you tell me just a little bit more how you came to write the book? Because in the introduction, it was, um, it really gripped me. I was sort of really invested in um, how it came to be. Absolutely. So the origin story of the book probably started around 2015. I had an opportunity to spend some time in Geneva at the Graduate Institute as a fellow and was doing research in the archives. And Hans Kelsen, who is a very favorite thinker of mine, his archives, his papers are held there. And I was sitting in a room going through letters that he wrote. Uh, during, before, during, and after World War II, and talking about his human struggle during that time. And I was realizing it was the very same time period in which he was writing his seminal book, Peace Through Law. And it you know, really, for me, connected that all of the things that we've come to study in law, whether a treaty, whether a doctrine, whether uh, you know, somebody else's work, comes out of moments in time and history and comes out of also people's lived experience that includes emotion, empathy, bias, and so much more. So thanks to Hans Kelsen, who is quoted in the very beginning of my book, uh, I started on this journey with this project. And it was like, it was such an interesting project as well. Now I want to turn to sort of the sort of substantive uh, sort of material in the book. Um, and sort of one of the overarching themes where there seems to be this assumption in law, including in international law, that decision makers can and do put aside the human side of themselves, that is their emotions, their empathy, their bias and their beliefs when making choices. 
And I think this comes through, even if you're at law school, you know, we have this idea that, you know, judges, they're impartial, they're objective, they're free of biases. But can you explain more about how these assumptions that decision makers are assumed to be able to stand down their human side uh, when making choices? Can you tell me about this? Yes. So uh, many listeners may or may not have heard of a movie called Legally Blonde that came out in 2001 with Reese Witherspoon. And the opening scene when she's new at law school, the distinguished law professor writes on the board a quote often ascribed to Aristotle that law is reason free from passion or something similar, end quote. And as a law student, many of us learn that you are supposed to approach your work as a lawyer without being partial. So the idea of impartiality as a legal practitioner and thinker is embedded from the very beginning of our journey as lawyers. What does it mean to be impartial? And in the beginning of the book, I tell a story uh, where I'm at a dinner and was able to talk with people at the dinner who are all very learned practitioners, judges, scholars in the field of international law. And we started to have important conversations around how international law in general and how the International Court of Justice in particular has or has not reached the question of dealing with the abhorrent crime of genocide. And in that moment, I'm in a discussion with somebody who I don't name in the book about my view and his view. And I'll I'll stop there not to give it away, but the, the end of the story is that moment I realized so many people in law and so many people in international law truly still believe what we were taught in law school, that you can look at something, you can separate the law and the fact, and you can look at both impartially, and you can apply law to fact or fact to law and reach an outcome that's your legal judgment or analysis. And that's it. And I started to fundamentally question, do human beings even work that way? So this book starts me, started me and takes the reader on a journey, not just through law, but also through neuroscience, uh, behavioral science, and other evidence-based research around how people, how our brains, how our brain behavior connections actually work, and how international law does and doesn't take account of that in the work that we do. So then would you argue that judges should set aside their emotions and empathy when making choices? I appreciate this question, Jane, because when I've talked about this book to judges and I've had an opportunity to talk about some of my work that this book is based on to a bunch of judges here in the United States, federal judges and um, some international arbitrators and judges too. And people always ask this question. My argument is not should or shouldn't, what judges should or shouldn't do. My argument is what is humanly possible and how should international law update our approach based on the best scientific research and evidence about what it means to be human? I'll be a bit more specific. You know, we are learning things every year about uh, neuroscience and how our brains do and don't work. But what we do know and this has been confirmed by by meta-analysis studies uh, across a number of different areas about the brain. It's incredibly complex. The old idea that people have a left brain or a right brain and you can separate things out is really outdated. Instead, our brain is a fantastic and sometimes daringly scary network of activity, of, of cognitive activity and What we do also know from specific studies is that when we're engaging in what we consider to be a choice, the cognitive uh, functions that produce a choice, and choices can be broad, they can result in decisions, they can result in assumptions, it can result in judgments and assessments. But when you're making a choice, your brain is using a lot of different areas and a lot of different networks. Those areas intersect across emotion, the places that we process emotion, the places we process memory which may raise empathy or bias or other beliefs as we recall things that have happened in our past. So it's a long complex way of saying that if law only thinks about choice as being able to separate uh, law from fact and apply things impartially, that is not consistent with other fields, important fields 
that are showing us just how intricate our brain activity is. And that's, I found really fascinating because especially, you know, in law school or as lawyers, we just don't think about this at all. These sort of processes are going on, um, you know, even without our knowledge, without our awareness, are actually so integral to the decisions that are made. And these impact the lives of, you know, so many people, especially in international law. So then can you tell me, moving to the next chapter, which is titled International Law as Human Choice, how is international law shaped by human choice? Thank you for the question. So chapter two does a survey, but it is not a complete survey, of the different fields and methodologies, foundations, assumptions, and implications that the field of international has drawn upon to understand judicial decision-making, political legal decision-making, um, and other you know, decision-making in human rights and more. Here, we see the work of many fields converge. So we talk about uh, understanding what we, what we can uh, understand to be from behavioral psychology, that sometimes we take shortcuts like heuristics, like we might associate uh, a judgment on, based on something we did in the past. And we also learn from uh, economic behavior economics, different ways that we process and think about decision-making. There's been a deep, rich literature around this, particularly on the judicial decision-making side to show that, of course, judges, in my opinion, of course, judges uh, are not immune to thinking about their reputations, to thinking about beliefs that we might understand to be political. And those things can and do come up in a person when they are sitting in the role of a judge. I think what this book hopes to add to that rich literature is the neuroscience and uh, be, sort of broader perspectives around brain behavior-based uh, understandings. And you know, neuroscience is not just one field, it's many, it's complex, but I like to say that in general, neuroscientific studies often try to show the how in addition to the what. So I'll give you a specific example. For a long time before neuroscience really got going, people knew that fear would implicate our choices. If you're feeling afraid, you might make a different choice than if you're not feeling afraid. And what neuroscience then shows has been able to show that for many people, because not everyone's brain is the same, if you are feeling afraid, the process, this is a simple way of putting it, by which your brain goes through the circuitry, the systems, the parts of the brain that are invoked in making a choice actually changes. Fear is often processed in the amygdala. It's also a top location for what we might call bias. So those two things can intersect literally in a physical way and implicate each other. So I think the short answer for your important question is international law is still trying to understand human choice. There's been a lot of work on decision-making specifically, judging, but to broaden it out across uh, both methodologies and fields, neuroscience has something to contribute. And this is one of the early contributions to international law from that neuroscientific perspective. I think that's partly what I found so fascinating in the book, rather than being sort of disillusioned to think that actually judges can't ever be wholly objective or, you know, the quote that you mentioned earlier from Legally Blonde, that um, reason being free from passion, I think it actually adds a real richness to the power of decision-making and the choices that they make. And this, this understanding really does bring um, much more of a richness to it. So we see it, choices being made not as one-dimensional, but um, as sort of the human choices. So I just want to sort of delve a bit more into this. Um, about this idea of how people choose, because this was really a new contribution, I think, to um, research. And you bring together some really interesting explanations with regards to how people do make uh, choices. Can you tell me a little bit more, like you, you've uh, begun already, but can you perhaps go further and tell me a bit, of, bit more about how the concept of choice um, operates and what we know about it? Absolutely. So I, here I have to do some caveats with a nod to the field. So I am looking as an international lawyer, an international law professor, someone in the field at how international law often talks about choice. We use certain words 
And neuroscientists don't talk about it like that. They don't frame that it that way. So in neuroscience, you might find, for example, a couple of key ways of framing a conversation. First, there's no unitary process in our brains for thought. Instead, there are many. So thought in the brain can show up in different ways. And it, we also can engage in different kinds of thoughts. So think about the last time you felt most creative. Uh, for me, it's often when I've had a chance to sit down and do nothing and just daydream, uh, which isn't often these days, but you know, you'll get a great idea late at night or you'll get a great idea on the weekend when you've had a chance to not be doing things. Neuroscience shows there's a reason for that. Uh, when our brain is directed in what you might, or is engaged in what you might understand as directed thought, we're really focused on achieving tasks where we're really focused on doing a particular kind of legal analysis. The parts of our brain that are most often used in creative thought are not able to interact in the same way. So what does it tell us? I mean, I, I, I'm always cautious about reaching conclusions because neuroscience itself as a field hasn't reached a singular conclusion, but has many interacting conclusions. But I think, you know, practically speaking, if you're trying to do certain kinds of work, it's hard to put creative work and fast-paced, efficient, task-based work together and achieve both in the same moment in time. And then that implicates us for when we do, when we go to work. If you, same thing for crisis-based decision-making. So here, if we think about a lot of times lawyers are involved in the moment of a crisis, something hard has happened in an organization or in a government, and a lawyer is called into the room to help other decision makers understand what should we do. People are feeling stressed. People are feeling a sense of urgency. Those kinds of feelings implicate brain activity. So the kind of decision you might be making in that moment would be processed in a different way than if you weren't feeling that sense of stress or urgency. People then say, okay, well, is it good or is it bad? And that's often a too simplistic way of thinking about it. Uh, these kinds of emotions, empathy and bias that inter interact with our decision-making and choice can be good for us and can be bad. And I'll give one specific example. Uh, some studies looked at, you know, you're driving a car on the highway. If you get a call that you failed an exam, thinking of, you know, if you're a student, uh, you're going to be distracted from your driving. So your feelings and how you process learning that bad news will distract you from the job that you're doing, which is driving the car. If you get a call that there's an, you know, a roadblock up ahead and you have to take a detour, you could become better at driving because you're more focused on the task with that new information. Uh, so these just sorts of complex understandings are not as simple as saying this is good for you to make a choice or this is bad. It's context dependent. But the important thing back to your overall point is that international law first has to appreciate that people are people who then make a choice through law. And there's nothing, uh, it doesn't serve us as a field or a practice or area of study to neglect the parts that make us human. And I think that was a, it's a fascinating point that does come through in the book. Um, just as you say, it's, um, it's sort of, it does seem remiss to neglect the part of us that is human, that influences decision-making. And, you know, as someone who, you know, is a lawyer, academic sort of type, um, but I don't do this sort of neuroscience work. Um, so it was so interesting, you know, just reading about, and you do, um, make it come across to your audience in a really um, a way that, you know, I could understand how these processes like memory, empathy, emotions, and bias do impact on choice. Perhaps you could just talk a little bit more about um, some of these factors, because I think this really, what I liked is it really set up the rest of the book to then show how these um, sort of factors do influence human choice in international law. And as we move on to the rest of the book. Absolutely. So I just want to first give a shout out to my family and my cousins because I have a lot of cousins and I have um, young people in my family and old people in my family. And I really thought about them in writing this book. None of them are in international law. None of them are in law. Uh, many of them would never pick up a book like this 
to read. And I wanted this book to be the right blend of hard hitting research and deep legal analysis, but also stories, narratives, history that makes international law accessible to anyone because international law is for everyone. It is one of the tools by which our world uh, solves problems of a global nature and becomes a better for more people in the future. So it was really important to me to have this book read in a way that is not just accessible, but is hopefully interesting. And I really appreciate um, how you, your perspectives on how you found it. So to turn back to this idea again, why do we care about human choice and neuroscience? So I wanna talk about bias. It's been a lot uh, said on bias. Bias can be understood in different ways, depending on what kind of field you're thinking, frame you're thinking about it. From my frame, we think about bias as a way in which we show a preference for or against something, for or against a person. And we think about bias, often people say, oh, it's implicit, meaning I'm not aware of my, I'm not aware that I had a preference for a person or for, or for a thing. It's explicit, I am aware. I knew that I was selecting this over that. Uh, from neuroscience, implicit and, and, and explicit is in the right frame. Instead, it's considered hidden cognition. And I find this to be really fascinating. When you think about the last major life decision you made, you probably thought about it really hard. You might've asked friends for advice. You might've put a list of pros and cons, but even then there were parts of your thinking that were occurring in a hidden way, a memory that you barely could recall that brought up a feeling that you hadn't had in a long time that would have influenced again on the brain level, how you process the choice you made. So all of this goes back to decision makers, international law. If you're a diplomat, if you're a human rights advocate, if you're a judge sitting on the International Court of Justice, there's the part of choosing that you're aware of. And there's a part of choosing that's going on that you have no idea because it's hidden cognition. So the human choice and bias work that I talk about in um, the chapter gets us into the next section, which goes to how does this kind of activity and uh, insight show up when we make some of the biggest decisions in international law? and what should international law do about that? Um, and that was, yeah, it was uh, just really fascinating. Um, so you've just mentioned this now, the uh, choices and how they're made at the International Court of Justice. And this is sort of moving into the next part of the book um, because you do analyse the choices that shape specific parts of international law. And, yeah, as I say, um, the first part does focus on the International Court of Justice. Now, I was really gripped by your analysis, um, you describe genocide as being decided. And this is not, you know, usually in legal terms, how we think of things. So can you tell me more about choice in the ICJ and in particular, the role that human choice plays in deciding genocide? Yes, the part two of the book, I focus the story on three spaces and places in which international law happens. The International Court of Justice, then I move to the United Nations Security Council, and then I move to broadly speaking, human rights spaces. Uh, and I do that to carry the thread of the book through and make it accessible to people who may identify with international dispute resolution and adjudication, may identify with international legal politics and political worlds, or may identify with human rights spaces. Uh, so to the ICJ, you know, I've been fortunate in my career to interact with a number of judges, including a few who have been on the ICJ and uh, who are on the ICJ. I was able to interview them and I'm very grateful to them for letting me interview them. And I asked them different kinds of questions. I asked them questions, not, you know, what did you decide in a case or how did you think about it? But I asked them why questions and how did it make you feel questions and questions that are, are a little less common. And you'll see what they had to say in the book, I quoted them with permission and uh, wanted to represent them as they, as exactly and precisely as they had contributed. I also go through this moment in international law that we can say started, well, it didn't start, but we can say really took steam after World War II. We know 
all the horrors that World War II inflicted upon millions of people around the world. And we also know that it was the spark plug for what would become the United Nations. Uh, genocide was named shortly after World War II. We get the Rome Statute later, but first we had the Genocide Convention, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And we also know that genocide is a use kogan, a norm from which states cannot derogate. So states, all nations around the world have a duty to prohibit genocide and to prosecute those who commit it. So that takes us to the ICJ, which is one of the places, but not the only one, that has to decide tough questions about whether or not uh, genocide has taken place and what the state responsibility might be in a given situation. So I talk about a particular set of cases at the ICJ, and I take it to the image of the judges. There are 15 judges who sit in the court who are elected. Uh, you have to get through a lot of, of hoops to make it to the ICJ. You have to be elected by majority vote by both the UN General Assembly and the UN Security Council. So by the time these 15 judges are interacting and thinking you know, about a case, uh, we expect the best kind of legal analysis in the world. And when you think about a judge looking at a case where facts, hard things have happened in the past, that's one thing. But there was a case not that long ago, and it took place in events surrounding the aftermath of the genocide, the horrific genocide in Rwanda uh, in 1994. So in 2002, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the DRC, brought an application against Rwanda alleging that Rwanda had engaged in, quote, massive, serious, and flagrant, end quote, violations of human rights and international humanitarian law. They claimed genocide. They put forth 11 legal grounds for which the ICJ could find it had jurisdiction. In analyzing this jurisdictional issue, the court ultimately determined that it did not have jurisdiction to entertain the DRC's application and it was not required to rule on its admissibility. You can read about the why in the book, but I wanted people to focus on the judges themselves. When you look at the judgment by the court, it was 15 to two, 15 in majority and two against. But all of the judges in the majority wrote separate opinions or separate uh, messages of some kind, further explaining their views. That says something. And there's a particular separate opinion authored by Judge Higgins and others, including Judge Sima, who I quote in the book, that sent a strong message. They said, quote, it is a matter for serious concern that at the beginning of the 21st century, it is still for states to choose whether they consent to the court adjudicating claims that they have committed genocide. In other words, if the ICJ doesn't have jurisdiction to hear a claim of genocide, is that a problem? Now I understand the precise legal nature of the ICJ's decision, but I was interested in interviewing and talking with a judge who was there. And I was able to talk to Judge Sima, who in his co-authored separate opinion discussed the why and discuss how this impacted him. And I use that and I also uh, have other judges in other cases own reflections on why they decided, including the phenomenal Judge Bergenthal. Uh, they talk about how hard it is to go with a decision that you might think is absolutely right on the law, even when some people would say it is allowing injustice to occur. And to wrap the story up, there's so much here, but one of the hardest parts about this case in my mind was in 2002 and 2004, when it was all coming to the ICJ, people on the ground, their lives were at stake. This wasn't a case that was merely in the past. This was something that was happening in real time. And how a judge thinks about their own role and the immediate impact on human lives is a part of understanding judicial choice. So there's a lot of really interesting reflection in this chapter in particular about what does it take to be a judge? And my message to judges of all stripes 
and to the field of international law, we should not expect our judges to suppress that, parts of, that best part of them that makes them human. We should not ask them to hide their empathy or their emotion. We should not expect that judicial behavior be modeled after something that is uh, long, long outdated. And I talk more about why this matters in the chapter. And it's such a powerful message. And it was so, I'd say it's so moving to read, actually. Um, just, yeah, just um, because, you know, if you're outside the ICJ, you read these decisions and you can sit at home or you watch things on the news and you say, well, that just seems really unjust. Um, and you don't think about the human part of the decisions being made by the judges um, not just the impact on them, but the implications in a legal sense as well. It's, it was, yeah, it was really interesting and fascinating to read. And so I very much enjoyed that. It added a, very much a new dimension to thinking about law um, and the impact that choice does make. Um, I guess this is a good time to move on to talking about then human choice at the UN Security Council, because that's your next sort of case study. So can you tell me more about how the UN Security Council makes choices? Absolutely. So this is our fifth chapter in the book, and we move to the space that is the United Nations Security Council. Uh, I have a particular connection to the Security Council early on in my career when I was an attorney advisor at the U.S. State Department. I had an opportunity to serve as a U.S. delegate to a subsidiary group under the Security Council called the UN Compensation Commission. And I had an opportunity to sit in those chairs where delegates sit and they debate and they discuss and they vote. I learned how you know, government speech uh, is produced. I learned how government positions are created and cleared. I learned that long before people sit around the table and vote, there's a lot behind the scenes. And I write about this and I've written about the UN Security Council in depth before in previous work to talk about one of these other questions, I will say, in international law. Uh, international law is often defined as being the product of state consent. <laughs> uh, and there's, you know, this is theoretical, there's lots of versions and views and I do get into this in the book in the beginning. But I am with former president of the ICJ, Judge Rosalind Higgins, who finds that international law is more than the rules governing relations between states. It's more uh, than state consent. It is a legal system. And it's the entire, and I quote Higgins here, quote, decision-making process made by authorized persons or organs in appropriate forums within the framework of certain established practices and norms. End quote. In other words, international law is all of the things. It is a set of rules, a legal system with norms, and for purposes of this book, a result of decision-making processes. I extend the theoretical conversation about what is international law to add something more. That whatever else international law is, it is also the product of human choice. Now, one day, if we have AI-driven choices, that might change. Taking us to the Security Council, you see this. So I'm excited about this chapter because it tells a recent story. And I was able to interview people at the Security Council who were present in the room in the moment that led up to the Security Council's authorization of the use of force into Libya uh, when Omar Gaddafi was in charge. And leaving aside the complex set of history that we have around that decision moment, there are actually several decision moments, I want to call out what one person told me. Now, these people asked not to be named, so they're named without, or they're quoted without attribution in the book. But this person described the day that the decision to vote to use force was made and how there was a sense of both relief mixed with jubilation. Relief because there were people still around who remember 1994 and remember the United Nations inaction or extremely slow action to intervene and stop the genocide in Rwanda. And there was conversation, not again, 
there was a sense at the time by some, not all, that what was going on in the ground in Libya at that moment was very close to bursting and becoming full-on genocide. Now we can debate whether or not that was the case after the fact, but for those decision makers, back to the neuroscience, they were driven in a crisis-based moment with a sense of urgency to save lives from their perspective. The other piece I talk about is what happened after. For anyone who followed all that happened uh, beyond the news, you will know that lots of civilians were killed and harmed either directly because of the intervention or uh, because of circumstances relating to it. And that life was not greatly improved for all. And this individual who I interviewed, there were several, but this one told me that they regretted this decision after the fact. And they realized after the fact that they were a part of being responsible, unintendedly, but responsible for lives lost. So I tell this story to pull out the, what I call the human aspects of a really big, important decision in international law. Anytime the United Nations authorizes the use of force under our UN you know, chapter seven authority, it's a chapter six and seven authority, it's a big deal. And people around the world pay attention to that moment. So it's important that we fully understand not just the legal and political decision-making, but the human activity behind it. And I think you really draw that out just in that example you gave just now um, about how some of the decision makers in the room actually remembered uh, the 1994 genocide and were thinking, you know, not again. And that sort of shows you the cognitive processes that they may be aware of or not aware of that are going on behind the decisions being made. So I think that was a really really powerful example and then you write about how I think this how human choice in this UN Security Council is somewhat of a contrast in the way that choices are made in um, the ICJ I mean please correct me if I've um, misunderstood but can you tell me whether about the impact of emotion bias trust and interpersonal relationships even are different in this context so this is a fantastic area for us to get into because there are two threads that I'd like us all to put together. The first thread is that on a very basic level, every single human being has certain commonalities around how we make choices, what's possible in our brains, what, what kind of cognitive activity we can and, and do do. And there's of course variation, we're all different, but our brains are our you know, brains per our species. So on that level, decision-making across these areas in international law is not fundamentally different from a neuroscientific human choice perspective. From a legal perspective, it is. When you're at the International Court of Justice, what is the authority and purview and purpose of the court? What is the authority, purpose, and purview of a judge? There's parameters there that certainly shape what each and every judge finds their role uh, to be. When you're in the Security Council, it's a very different context. The authority by which the Security Council operates is rooted in the very United Nations Charter itself. And the group is not just making decisions um, in any one area that's not legal, it's not just policy, it's not just political, it's all of those things and more. So political, quasi-legal, deciding the fate of the future of the world type choices are set up differently in uh, their framework from the kinds of choices that the ICJ makes, which brings us to the third example, which is the space of human rights. Uh, and human rights is big. There's a lot of different ways that decision makers are asked to make choices in human rights. You can be a human rights lawyer making advocacy before a human rights body you can be a human rights advocate, advocating on behalf of people who have been harmed. You can be a scholar, you can be an educator, you can be somebody who's demonstrating and standing up for your own human rights. There's lots of context. But one of the things I point out across the three spaces, the court, the security council and human rights is the different norms that might permeate. 
in human rights, sometimes there's a sense that, of course, you are supposed to be uh, demonstrably fired up, impassioned. It's okay that you would feel. It would be okay to show those feelings. Sometimes it manifests as anger, or sometimes it manifests as pain, where such show of feelings and emotion would the expectation at the ICJ by anyone in that room would be different, would be to not be so demonstrable, to be quiet, demure, uh, to have a certain decorum. So it's interesting when we think about how people are in these spaces and what the very norm of the space encourages and dissuades. That's interesting because you do, it makes you wonder um, about how the norms actually influence the choices that are made and cognitive processes and the neuroscientific aspect. So I guess this is a good time to pick up more on the sort of third area that you go into, which is human choice and human rights. Um, can you talk more about the concept of human rights as human choice? So, uh, yes, of course, and human rights is near and dear to my heart. It's an area that I write about and educate on and practice in and care very deeply about because it goes to the fundamentals of why we even have something called international law, which is to advance human dignity, to advance equality, to advance all the things that will hopefully prevent conflict and violence and promote uh, the future of humanity. So in this chapter, I talk about a brief history of human rights. And it's important for me when I discuss human rights to center the human rights history from multiple global perspectives and make sure that it doesn't have a center that it's been traditional in being centered in European and Western thought. Uh, and I talk about how human rights show up um, in choice because they often connect to moments of crises where there could be a natural disaster that has complicated by how government officials or others have treated it. And here I'm thinking about Hurricane Katrina in the United States, where I was able to work after Hurricane Katrina with communities who'd been most affected in New Orleans. And people there would say, don't call this a natural disaster. This is a human-made disaster because you know, what we're suffering from, lack of clean water, uh, lack of access to basic needs could have been prevented by people. And I say that to say that when we think of human rights, we think about who's responsible for the bad things that have happened, how to hold them accountable. We often don't make the full circle into preventing the next set of human rights harms. And the choices that international law gets involved with the human rights uh, are often then framed retroactively, but not proactively. So I think the first piece of choice in human rights is to really think about the life cycle of choices and how you treat a human rights violation in one decade, what's changed the next decade, or how you treat it in one part of the world, what changes when you go to the other part of the world. And this is where the work in the book on bias comes up. So there is a lot to be said about bias in human rights. And I'll put it more firmly. There's a lot to be said about all forms of discrimination, homophobia, racism, you know, discrimination against people on the basis uh, of their disability or ableism throughout the world. And some of these biases are deeply embedded in the human rights frameworks themselves. So if you are a leader in human rights, let's just say you are a commissioner at the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, you're there because you have deep expertise and you care. And I talk about the Inter-American Commission in the book and you are there to represent the authority by which the commission exists, but your role with people is different than a judge at the ICJ. And here I acknowledge two fantastic uh, people who served as commissioners, Margaret May McCauley and Flavia Piovesen, who during the Inter-American Commission session that I was attending, empathized with the people there who were hurt, who were angry, who had emotion-leading pleas to the commissioners to help them find their lost loved ones, to make the, the hard things, the violations stop. 
and a decision maker in the human rights space, these two women knew that part of their role wasn't just to give information or fact or authority, but was to show real human concern for the conditions of those before them. That mark of empathy is something I think is uniquely positioned in the human rights spaces that we don't see in the Security Council, for example, or in the ICJ in a very visible way. So long story is that our human rights chapter gets into a lot of the bias and the empathy discussion around human choice. It was very, very interesting to read. Um, so I want to turn now to the next chapter, which is called Changing the Culture of Choice. And I want to just ask you, how do we change the culture of choice or should we? And how value can how can value be attributed to human choice in international law? Okay, so I start this chapter off with the well-known quote from uh, our feminist Gloria Steinem. And she says, quote, imagine a world where we are all linked, not ranked, end quote. I use that quote because international law is ranked. That was the origin story. Nations were ranked. There wasn't equality of nations. Uh, that was why the United Nations Charter tried to formally establish this idea that all nations, all sovereign nations should be equal under the law. And to start a system off that is ranked, you've already structurally embedded a certain way of being. So just like the entire world is rethinking important questions around equity and around inclusion and around who matters and why, and around how to spread resources, international law should too. And here I've been doing a lot of work in my professional life, both as vice chancellor here at UCLA for equity, diversity, inclusion, and as a vice president in the American Society of International Law around thinking about questions of global, not just equality, but global equity. What does it require of international law? So in this chapter, I talk about my own argument that it is time for the culture of international law to shift and to change. The world is shifting and changing. And if international law is going to remain relevant and helpful for all the future global challenges that we will be facing, it too needs to have an authentic and profound culture shift. One that permeates these layers of hierarchy and the array of institutions that perpetuate those. Uh, I start the conversation in this chapter, there's much more to be done to suggest a few things that I think are important to think about now, but I wanna firmly put forward to anyone listening, it is not for any one person to say, how do you change culture? It's for the group. This is a fantastic and hard project for the collective that considers ourselves to be a part of international law. And that's a very, very powerful message. Um, just on that, when they were drafting the UN Disability Convention, the theme was nothing about us without us. So I think that's a really sort of strong message for, you know, looking at collective solutions to these issues. And then the final chapter, um, the international law we need. Now, I just want to ask you, you offer really... Um, a great analysis moving from what international law was, what it is, and what international law should be. I'm just wondering if you can bring together all the parts of your book and tell me how you see this trajectory. So it's a, it's is the final moment. So I just want to thank everyone if you're still with us. Uh, there's a lot here, but the concluding message is everything changes. And because everything changes, everything must adapt and evolve. International law has an important past, but the past should not stand in the way of what international law needs to become. And for me, I care deeply about the future of humanity and the future of our planet. I started my career a long time, you know, two plus decades ago, working on climate change at the US Environmental Protection Agency. I was involved with the Conference of the Party Six. And I remember then the sense of urgency that we had to act. That sense of urgency has been replaced with a sense of emergency. Climate change is here. The climate crisis is with us. This book, the message behind the book, uh, a lot of the work that I and others do is to say to all of us, let's stick together, band together, 
and figure out how to right this ship because we only get one more shot as a people on a planet. And international law is a fantastic tool that I deeply believe in for promoting global cooperation, but only if it prioritizes the promotion of global cooperation over some of the other interests that it has historically put forward. So with that, I hope that people will read the book and more importantly, think about whoever you are, wherever you are, how you too can become a part of the mission that international law is on, which is to secure and promote peace, equality and dignity for everyone in our world. Thank you, Anna, so much. That's a really, really important message. And I also hope everyone will read the book because it was really important, I think. Um, I think it should be given to every student at law school, you know, when you're learning about sort of introduction to law because it it really humanizes the law. Um, yeah, so thank you so much. Now, just I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, um, our traditional New Books Network, last question, what are you working on now? Well, I seem to be a stickler for hard topics. So my next book, which is under contract with Oxford University Press, is called Global Racism. And it's built upon a law review article I published in 2016 called Human Rights Racism in the Harvard Human Rights Journal, where I identify, you know, perhaps one of the first to do so, that international law does not have a legal definition agreed to by nations of racism, only racial discrimination. And I talk about why, from a lived experience, someone who's had the human rights violation that is experienced as racism requires a specific definition. Now in my present day work, I'm responsible for in part uh, upholding civil rights protections and racism is one of the things that violates that. When you don't have a clear definition, it's hard to hold people accountable. It's hard to make uh, a shift in the right direction. So I'm gonna be talking more, a lot more about this project of global racism, why we need to understand it as a global phenomenon given its history and its present day manifestations. And I'm really excited for that project. Thank you, Jane, so much for having me on this wonderful podcast. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, so just to recap, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Professor Anna Spain Bradley about her latest book, Human Choice in International Law. It was published by Cambridge University Press uh, around a month or two ago, so it's so recent. Um, hopefully you will read it. Um, Anna, thank you for your time. Thank you.